Welcome to the Grass Matters podcast brought to you by Great Southern. I'm your host, Andrea Crothers. Anyone who's ever been to Tasmania knows exactly why it's world famous for its food. In fact, Philip Kennedy, he loved the place so much, he opened a fine dining restaurant in Melbourne specialising in Tassie produce. 17 years on, Pure South Dining is an institution, although things are looking very different currently. Philip Kennedy, thanks for coming on the podcast. Great, thanks for talking to me. King Island beef, uh, St Helens oysters, Bass Strait scallops, they're all pretty fine dining experiences, but I don't imagine they were on the menu at home when you grew up as a boy in northern Victoria. Oh, gee, I think we ate pretty well on the farm when I was a kid, but uh, the quality of the product anyway. Um, But no, we didn't have it from such exciting, more remote places as you just mentioned. Yeah. What was on the menu as a kid? Oh, granddad's chickens and eggs and our beef and our lamb and things off our own farm. We made our own butter and cream and our milk. Um, so a mixed farm, but if you have a dairy, you pretty much that's where you hang your hat. You're a dairy farmer. So, yeah. so you grew up in Makatar, which for those that don't know, it's a tiny little town just up near Yarrawonga in northern Victoria. Yeah, sort of in a triangle that would include Cobram and Katamatite. Makatar, calling it a town, is overstating it. <laughs> Where did this love affair with Tasmania come from? A trip to King Island with my brother with the idea of maybe a steakhouse in mind. Uh, in 2003, we first did that, yeah. So we mucked around with the idea and talked about it for a little while, but in 2003 we flew to King Island. Uh, got goosebumps, loved it, yeah, kicked on with it. So you had the idea in mind to have a restaurant based around Tasmania before you'd even been there? Yes, the early idea was King Island Beef, a a steakhouse style, but a modern steakhouse, which Melbourne, no one was really doing at the time, in 102 in Melbourne. So we thought we'd go modern, classy, upmarket, best beef and all about provenance and King Island was our story. We thought we might include the dairy produce and the lobster from there as well, but a steakhouse essentially. So what was the steakhouse scene like in Melbourne at the time? Uh, Some pretty old school stuff that was at the time needed a bit of a polish up. No offence to anybody who's run some great businesses for a long time. Um, So Vlado's, Squire's Loft, Grill on the Hill have been iconic, fantastic Melbourne restaurants for a long, long time. They were the steakhouse offerings and no one else had really reinvented the steakhouse in Melbourne since I think those guys were all born in the late 60s, early 70s, or about then anyway. A pub would have a steak on the menu, but no one specialised and had four steaks or five steaks and talked about different cuts and where they were from and then gave it to a chef who was a good chef in his own right. So we were taking a great chef and introducing to beef with provenance. We're hanging it on the bone and aging it ourselves. And that was the idea at start. And we did that, but we just added a lot more to the menu. So we went further, we went into different farms and fishermen in King Island, Flinders Island and Tassie. So you said you had goosebumps. Take me back through that first experience landing in there. Yeah, wow. I actually, to be fair, the first trip to King Island uh, was Oh, it was knee-high green grass in December. And I grew up up on the Murray where 
you know, browned if off in October through November and by Christmas there wasn't much to eat. Uh, you know, there wasn't green grass past your ankles anyway, and this was knee high. Um, I was a couple of weeks later on Flinders Island and I had a, a stunning experience of uh, eating and drinking with the locals who were people that I identified with. You know, they were farmers and primary producers and good country folk just in this remote little blob of land out in the middle of Bass Strait. Yeah, if we give people some background first. So for those that have never been down to that part of the world, it's two islands on the Bass Strait. You've got King Island, which is out to the northwest of Tasmania and Flinders out to the northeast of Tassie. And they're really small sort of communities, aren't they? Only a couple of thousand people between the two of them. Oh, uh, probably, I think at the time we're talking 15, 1600 people on each island, uh, you know, 50 Ks, 60 Ks from north to south. 20 k's across similarly for the two of them um farming communities tiny little towns with a pub and everybody knew each other uh in flinders island i had this amazing day where we're in the ferno tavern the pub in lady baron the, the second town if you like after white mark on flinders island and there's a chef uh, her name was laney she was clearly a good cook they were showing us around and showing off and trying to encourage us that we should include flinders island in our King Island idea. So you went in just with King Island, you didn't, Flinders wasn't on the radar. That, that's right. And, and someone from Flinders Island uh, said, you should come out here and see what we have before you commit, overcommit to just uh, that narrow idea. Uh, Max flew us down there. The pilot was a, passed away now, he's a ripping fellow. Uh, had it gave us a great day. We got shown around and we're sitting in this modest pub in a stunning bit of topography, I guess, uh, on, the, on the island, looking down this little boat harbour. We're looking at the bobbing crayfish boats and Laney's distracted from our conversation to take a phone call and comes back with a pencil and paper and she's just writing on an A4 piece of paper, garfish, flathead, stripy trumpeter, lobster, and then around that, she's adding a few garnishes and dishes. She's turning those that product into dishes, and she said, that's my menu for tonight and tomorrow night, and that boat that's just coming into harbour down below us, that's Barney, and Barney has all those things uh, in the box fresh coming off the boat now. 20 minutes later, Barney walks in the room with two eskies. This was not set up for us at all. And Laney, we've all gone over to the kitchen, opened up the eskies and looked at this fresh flipping and live product in the eskies. And she's saying, that's my menu tonight. I got goosebumps. That was really exciting. I thought, if that's how you can run a restaurant out here, why can't we go two kilometres down the road to the airport, fly that 40 minutes into Moorabbin and you know drive it to South Bank where we are? Done. That's a restaurant. Now, that's a great romantic idea and I love it. I still love it. But, wow, we bit off a fair bit. It's, a, it's not the most, it's not the path of least resistance. <laughs> it's not the easiest way to run a restaurant, but we, we took it on and we're still doing it. I remember some early experiences of eating King Island beef that we'd aged ourselves on the bone early days in the restaurant. And I was so elated. Yeah, the, the quality was amazing. I genuinely cut through a rump steak with the back of my knife. Yeah, so I turned my knife over 
and I almost put no weight on it and went through a rump steak. It was dry aged on the bone, rump steak from King Island. It was just Holy unbelievable dilly. to eat. Yeah, most, most people, and um, I'd say 90% of the population at least, no, 99% of the population have not eaten beef at its optimum, aged on the bone, dry, dry aged on the bone. And we've done a bit of that and we do it consistently. We have specials of dry aged beef on the bone that's been dry aged, but um, it's really hard to manage a perishable product and have it just right for the right amount of people to turn up and order the right thing all of the time. So it's more like a special. So if we, if you see a, a dry aged on the bone steak as a, as a special at Pure South, that's because it's perfect to eat right now. So what did you set out to achieve then? I don't know. <laughs> we should have had a better business plan, really. I don't think there was a P&L involved in this business plan, right? We just got a little bit excited and thought other people might too. So we thought we could bring something really special to market with a huge point of difference. And um, I, I, this was with my brother, TK, uh, Tony. Tony's uh, a bit of a dreamer and he his goosebumps didn't go away. Whereas I got back to work... Uh, he, I think he just he was a bit more excited than me and he kept interrupting me from real work to talk about what we might do. And, and you had a background together because you, you'd previously worked in five-star hotels, you had a pub together, but this was really taking things up a notch. Yeah, correct. I'd, I'd, had, I'd worked in... Uh, I'd been general manager at a couple of little resorts where we had a hat in a good food guide in our restaurant and I really loved that, so I loved the food. And that. TK had had a couple of... Uh, you call it the early days gastro pubs in Melbourne. So he had a really smart couple of little dining rooms in pubs in Melbourne. Um, so he liked that side of it too. Uh, we weren't focused on anything that was about serious food at the time. We, did, we had a pub in Burke Street in the city together. And this was about going back to fine dining for both of us. Yeah. Do you remember that first day you opened? Yeah, I do. It was ridiculous. Like most first openings, the you know, the painters and the electrician were going out the back door backwards, just finishing everything as we were rolling out our tables and chairs with no bookings on Saturday, the 27th of March, 2003. Uh, the, the Melbourne Food Mind Festival was on. There were a few people around. We had no idea. We were stapling menus together at five o'clock, uh, putting the bases on the tables still at 5.30. We opened about six and we had about 70 people came through for dinner, a few that we knew, all laughing at us and really enjoying what we did. It was good. What was on the menu? Uh, King Island beef. We, had, we were taking beef from two places. We had uh, Gronewald's chickens from out of Devonport. We had uh, lamb from Flinders Islands, and we had some stripy trumpeter and some salmon from Tassie, some oysters from the east coast of Tassie. Uh, yeah, some of the people that we're still dealing with today, King Island uh, cheeses from the King Island dairy. How would you say that your menu has evolved in the last 17 years? Uh, I think it's become um, uh, uh, a little bit more refined. It was a simple bistro menu based around King Island beef being the hero and then other options on the menu whereas now there's lots of heroes on the menu that might go to uh, Mount Norman Farm Pork or Scottsdale Pork or Lamb, Lamb of Tasmania from the Midlands in Tassie, Nichols Free Range Chickens. They're all heroes on the menu rather than just 
sort of anchored by the beef, uh, the seafood. We've had we've made, we've bought fish off boats. The moment we're not doing that at the moment. It's a little bit tougher, but there's more heroes in in the menu, and it's more broad and it appeals more broadly. I think it was quite blokey when we started. Yeah, yeah. That's the evolution of it. If we talk now, then I guess about food provenance. Consumers are obviously demanding more information. They want more transparency. How have you seen that shift towards that need for food provenance go in that time as well? I think it's become more evident that people like to talk about it or sprout their um, bona fides in that area, but I don't find that there are many that have real bona fides in that area. Um, Suppliers are trying to help with that as well because they know that the consumer wants it, but restaurateurs haven't really taken it on as seriously as they might. I think most restaurants take the path of least resistance and buy the simplest, easiest stuff to get by the kilo and it's a commodity, as opposed to our story of dealing with a farmer by first name and knowing him and her and their kids and their dog even, that, that, that connection to the farm that we have, I don't think many are really doing it. Before Tassie's borders closed, how often did you get back down there? Typically the answer is eight times a year. So we try to take the team. I've been, I'm feeling a little guilty or just my skin crawls right now that we didn't do it well in the second half of last year and then COVID came. So it's, uh, it makes me uncomfortable almost. We get there a lot. It's really important that the chefs know the farm and the farmer and why it's so good. I'm not bringing it here just because it's from Tasmania or where it's from. It's because it's really good. And it's, it's not just got a stamp on it made in Tasmania, it's quality, yeah. And knowing the farmer and their ethics and their principles and how proud they are of what they're growing, that makes the quality. Why is it so good then? If you know the person's really dedicated to farming and their product, as opposed to the market and logistics, then you know you're going to get a better product. And to, to give you an anecdote to explain that, I had... Um, Lauren Damon, his wife Henriette, and their absolute partnership on their farm at Kindred. And they've got an organic farm that's mostly around, oh, quinoa is their big hero, but they have beef as well, um, buckwheat, spelt, rye, all mostly fairly simple things that a restaurateur or a chef wouldn't get excited about, except that those two sitting with six of my chefs talking about quinoa spelt rye and buckwheat for 30 minutes and nobody's mentioned price yeah so one of the chefs looks at lauren and says to him how, uh, how much is this stuff how much it cost and he looked at henriette who said i don't know they their focus is totally on the quality of their product and their farm i don't care what the price is either at that stage because i know it's better than anyone else's because it's all they're interested in Another time I had a great supplier who did some small goods smoking and drying and curing for us. And I took my brand new head chef down on his first trip to, trip to Tasmania. And there'd been a change of ownership in this little, little boutique artisan business. And I met the new guy and I knew who he was. I'd met him earlier through something else. And we sat and chatted about, we, we got there to see him introduce each other and talk about what we might do together next. He spoke for half an hour about logistics and a problem he had with staff or the engine on his cool room or something. 
and not the product. Chef and I haven't spoken to him since. It was about five years ago. Now, I, I, I like the guy, but I don't know about the quality of his product because he's just not passionate about it. And that, if you can find people that are really passionate about the farming and fishing and that they do, you, you'll find some great product. So that's how we work. And that's what it's all about when you're at this end of the game, when you're in fine dining and that premium product. And I, I put their name on the menu, yeah? So they know it's almost like a quality control, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's not intended that way. I'm telling my customers this is where your food comes from, but my suppliers, farmers, fishermen know that I do that too. So they're proud of it. So they want to put their best in the box that goes in that little down the driveway into that little plane that flies to Melbourne because it's representing everything that they do. It's not it, just a business. No. Doggy Oliver is the guy who does our lamb. He's so passionate not to put this premium lamb into the market as a commodity. He wants his name on it. He wants, he wants people to know it's from Tasmania. Actually, he doesn't care a thing at all about his name. He's this parochial Tasmanian and really proud. And he, he's producing this beautiful product and it makes his skin crawl that it disappears into the market and no one knows why that beautiful bit of the lamb that they had was so good. And the reason is it's from, he chose it from this place and that's why it's really good. I tell you what, Tassie has done a really great job of brand Tasmania when you consider, compare it to other areas. There's definitely a reason why it's clearly so world famous for great food because places like Queensland, where I'm from, you don't have that. You have the individual regions, but not the same way that Tasmania's should put its name on the menu. They have an amazing natural advantage too. Obviously, the temperate climb and the breeds of protein that we like typically thrive in that climate and that environment and the clean water. And consistency as sea, well. air, you know, 21 degrees is average temperature in King Island in over s- summer. Yeah. And that's why they've still got knee-high green grass at Christmas time. It's different. It is different. I think they've grown up a lot in the last 20 years, Tasmania, as a, as a commercial brand to put on their state in that food and wine market. It, and it's, it, it is premium, but it's got better too. And they take it to market as quality, not quantity. Mm. Mm. We've been speaking a lot about where food comes from and that relationship with the producers themselves. There's actually been a really interesting program that JBS launched end of last year with King Island Beef, its traceability program. Uh, we saw it put some new technology in the Longford Abattoir uh, down there in northern Tasmania, basically helping people be able to use video technology to have individual primal cuts traced back to the individual producer. On a restaurant level then, Philip, being able to not just say, hey, this is King Island beef, but it was actually produced by Fred and Shona Perry, who's been there for 50 years, or the Polsons who have recently moved down there. How important is that for a restaurant like yours? Um Fred's been there for 70 years. 70 years, not 50. Sorry, Sorry, I'll be in trouble now. Exactly. Sorry, Fred. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, since the 50s. uh, How important is it? I think it's amazing because you can't fake that. It's incredible, right? So I've been looking at that technology that I just brought in thinking, how can we advance that here? So I want my customers to know that that's the farm it came from. I'm not sure how we implement it here. It's almost like QR code on the menu to say this is where our beef comes from mm, tonight. And people do want to know that, right? So I zapped one today 
and it's Duncan Clemens, and he's at, it says you know middle of King Island, but that's that's Pagara, and what a beautiful I know where that is, and it's a beautiful place, and to be able to know that's where it came from, surely I'm not the only person that would love that. That's great. I'm just imagining what it would be like because, you know, we often go for a bottle of wine and go, hey, this is the region that that's from. But to be able to sit there and do that with your piece of steak. It's amazing, isn't it? Mm. And you can see why avatars have taken so long to get to this point because when you've got such massive amounts of uh, livestock going through processes each day, the, the, yeah, to be able to get it down lost. to the individual farm, that is, I guess, why Tassie works because it is a sort of smaller scale. And you're a good country girl, so you get it that there's all these pens at the market, etc. So, and some guys might take a truck a fair distance and cross a border even to get to market. So, this but this is coming off King Island, so they have an, a natural advantage there too. It's quarantined a, a little bit, you know. I don't mm. mean literally the word quarantine, but so far as the provenance is pretty Careful obvious. Careful word to use in these times. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're away. Don't go there. Um, Tassie lamb's the same. It might be from... But these guys grade it as well. So it's not just King Island beef, but it's King Island beef that's been graded to a standard and then we know which farm it came off. And I, 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 I've met Duncan, so his name's popped up on a, pop, on a packet of a wrapped piece of beef. I know that... Boyd would have bought that from him and then put it on a boat over to Tassie to go to Longford. So I, to know that gives us so much confidence to move that on to our customer, yeah, and to be able to share that with them completes the circle. It's amazing. It's great. And it, it seems so simple, but no one else can do it, right? No, the technology required to be able to do that. Yeah. And the smarts and the traceability and just the effort that they've put into that. It, JBS is fantastic. King Island beef, the people on King Island are, are really, really pleased with it. It's what they're all about. I just want to move on now. 2020 has been a really rough year. How are you going? Yeah, great. I'm good. How are you actually going, Philip? <laughs> well, there's some challenges, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, it's been brutal. It's been more brutal on uh, my team and after 17 years here and some of them been here more than a decade that's not nice um i've had some people have only been here for a year or two working with us but we love them they've been you know you you work together pretty uh long not long and hard but you know you put in it's a real effort at, in hospitality it's a real emotional commitment to being hospitable um and i feel like it's one of the special things about working in hospitality, how much of a team effort it is. So when you see soldiers go down, it's not great. And, and they have, it's been really tough but for a lot of them. And we've lost a lot of them. A lot of them have flown home to other parts. They've vacated Melbourne and it's, that's the, the people costs being the biggest one. And I, I, I feel a little bit betrayed maybe, but I'll, without getting political, um, and I don't think we'll be able to stitch it back together. So the future's really uncertain. Yeah. We're currently sitting in Pure South Dining and all of the chairs are stacked up, all of the tables are stacked up. Your kitchen's still operational, um, thankfully. Obviously not at full uh, capacity. You have pivoted? Yeah, yeah, we're doing... Well, King Island Beef is part of that. So it's, you know, it's always been part of our story. Um, 
we're, so we're sending it to your door. We'll deliver it to your door. We're doing heat and eat meals that still come from our amazing team in the kitchen. I've got front of house people packing those boxes, putting labels on things. Pretty amazing, and they've been very resilient. But the way we had four business plans in six days as the whole thing fell over, but then we changed, we changed, we took stock, changed lanes again, and we've come up with something that I think is more long-term sustainable. But doesn't matter how long this lasts; it gives us something we can do that, you know, hopefully pay the bills and pay the wages, keep everyone fed. I don't want people to go when JobKeeper comes down and keg again. I don't want them to go back any further than they are already. It's been tough enough already, so let's hope we can pay the wages. So currently, yeah, you've got the ready-to-eat meals, but then you also sell things such as you can get your King Island beef tenderloin or... Yes, so we dry-age some and cut them for steaks ready to go into your oven or in, onto your grill. So chefs have done that for you. So tripped it up beautifully, rounded it, rolled it, aged it. And others, we just, the whole cryovac pack, whole scotch, I fill it, trimmed up a porterhouse to make a roast. You know, it feeds four beautifully or cut two steaks off, us and do, off it and do a small roast for two. So we're thinking all about dinner for two or dinner for family, four. Um, King Island beef pie, add that on. Uh, I also saw beef wellington. That is rock star. My mum is in love with Beef Wellington and she would cook it once a year and I'm all right with it, but she, honestly, if she was in Melbourne, I I guarantee she'd be putting on the weekly order. (laughs) And the boys have done that too. How do you get, how do you do a Beef Wellington at home, like? And it's tough. It's not really, it's not an easy cook, but it is if you get the whole thing wrapped up, ready to go. Chefs will do it. that night before in the afternoon and send it out to you in the next morning and it's good for three days to come out just perfect put it in your oven for i'm not sure i'll read the instructions i think it's 30 <laughs> minutes at 180 but browns up beautifully and it's king island eye fillet which the boys have slowly par cooked beforehand so it doesn't bleed out in the pastry or moisture and it's just all it is so good it's really good obviously the virus has been and the shutdowns with it the hospitality industry is easily been one of the hardest hit areas. Within that, though, it is incredible to see how so many businesses like yours have gone down this other pathway. It's almost like you're sewing together a parachute as your plane's going down. You know, it's sort of last minute, pretty tough. And we did pivot and pivot and pivot and, sick of saying, pivot. Um, really proud of a lot of people, too. You have to be tough to be in hospitality anyway, I think. It's not, it's the path less travelled. Um, you got that good country upbringing. There you go. That's what it is. We used to always employ country kids and Kiwis. <laughs> it's not like that anymore. It's changed a lot, Mel. We might be stuck back with that once or the. Yeah, really interesting. I think that the political side of it there is um, when we reopen, we had 70 plus staff. I've got about 15 of them waiting to come back on. Um, and the rest of the positions are. I've got no idea how we're going to refill them because there are lots of, like the farming and rural uh, seasonal jobs, the working holiday visas picked up all the jobs that the Aussie kids don't want. Yeah, it's not, it's not as though we turned away Australian people for those jobs. They were just working holiday visas, had their hand in the air saying, me, 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 I'll take it. And it was great for Melbourne's vibrant hospitality scene. How that bounces back, I've got no clue. I don't, I don't know. 
obviously no one knows how this is going to pan out, but where would you like to see Pure South go? I think I've been frightened of looking too far ahead, really. Uh, just sort of hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Um, back, in, back in March, February, we were having these conversations really early before the cl first close down. And, uh, our worst case scenario was this could last till July next year. Um, so I'm glad we said that because we just pulled down the shutters and you know looked around at how everyone might, how it might play out. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have a crystal ball. I've got no clue and I can't waste my imagination on what might happen next. I've got too much to do. The other interesting thing is with Melbourne, obviously other states are, are you know, reopening far quicker. With Melbourne, the move to outdoor dining that we're going to be seeing, how will that work for you? Because for those yeah. that haven't seen this spot, you're in a beautiful spot right up above the Yarra River, but it's not like you're directly on a footpath. Will you start to move things downstairs and out? I would have thought that the powers that be and bureaucracy would be swept out of the way a fair bit to make it at least have a reasonable go at it. It's pretty hard to reproduce outside what we've been doing. There, there is a fair bit of walk on, boardwalk on the river that we might be able to use, but I, I built this restaurant in in a renovation three years ago because the weather in Melbourne is not great for outdoor dining. It's, um, if you don't like the weather, just wait 20 minutes. So Change season. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So the swing of the wind and the rain and then it's too hot all in one day, it makes outdoor pretty tough in Melbourne. Beautiful when it's right, of course, and we're in a great spot for that, but it's, it's very unreliable. Pretty tough, right a roster around the weather, daily, hourly. Philip, I know it's probably hard to think about at this stage, but what is it that you most love about what you do that makes you sit there when you go to bed and go, you know what, this is why I'm here? The answer's really easy, that um, the team here, when they meet the farmers and uh, see the product come into the restaurant a week later. So being in Tassie, being boots on the farm or on the boat, then they're in the kitchen or at the pass a week later and they see that product coming over the pass and going to a table and they know where it came from and they know the farmer and they know the love and the effort that went into the quality of it. They get excited. They, they, they're at the table talking to the customers too quickly and too excited about the product. That's the goosebumps I got 17 years ago and it's still alive, so I, that's what I like. We actually did something that other people get excited about too. And just finally, mm. your perhaps best place to answer this of all people, if you had one last supper, what would you eat? Wow, that's already done, it's beef wellington. It's King Island beef, that's what it is. It's absolutely my favourite. Yeah, and who would you have over? Gosh, I've heard that question asked before, but I've never thought about it. Um, you better say your wife's name real quick or she might have be sharing pots to the no, pub with you anymore. I married the right girl, there's no doubt about that. How many people are at the table? Oh, you two can, you can have I. as big a table as you'd like. Well, there might be hundreds. I, I do like a crowd. You're a popular bloke. <laughs> well, I like a lot of people. Good yeah. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Cheers. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thanks for tuning in to the Grass Matters podcast. It drops every Thursday at 2pm. And if you do like what you're listening to, feel free to leave a review because it really does help. And you can also keep up to date on your socials by following the Great Southern Family.